This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey everyone, welcome to the Story Clatter, where true, personal stories about science help us to discover how weird and wonderful it is to exist in this world and be a human. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and it's always good to remember the basic truths about the principles of science. We're always learning, we have to stay open to new ideas and information at all times, and failure plays an inescapable, vital role in science. Try, fail, try again, fail again. No, really, I'm just talking about the scientific method. And this week, we have two storytellers who are the embodiment of generosity as they let us in on their scientific failures. Our first story is from Samuel Scarpino. Samuel is the director of AI Plus Life Sciences at Northeastern University and a professor of the practice in health and computer sciences. You might recognize him from the news. He's totally a media phenomenon, done something like 500 interviews over the years. His story was recorded in Boston and is for anyone who's ever pulled an all-nighter and had to face the fact that maybe you didn't deliver your best work. And hey, don't be surprised if you're a little hungry when the story is over. You'll see what I mean in a second. Here's Samuel. The first time I found myself in line at Four Corners of the Earth Deli in Burlington, Vermont, I basically had a panic attack. This is actually kind of a good thing because one of the ways I know I've landed in the right restaurant is if that kind of like fight or flight response kicks in like you really have no idea what's going on but you're pretty sure that it's going to be awesome i'm staring up at this wall of placards with sandwich names like jamaican avocado bohemian bacon babylonian beef there's no menu there's no description at all of what is contained between any of these slices of bread <laughs> and my brain does what it often does in these situations which is to abandon me and to, instead of thinking through what the plan is going to be when I come to the front of the line, it starts thinking about the science that I'm working on. And at the time, I'd been writing this paper about how hard it is to forecast infectious diseases. Back when I was writing the paper in 2018, I probably would have had to explain a little of why it's so hard, but that kind of goes without saying now. <laughs> it... Turns out it's actually a little bit interesting, right? So we were probably all watching the weather with the hurricane that was coming up today, and it, we had to wait until Wednesday to know like whether it was going to come into Boston and this event was going to happen. It's a little bit different in terms of what makes it hard for us to know how many COVID cases there are going to be in 6, 10, 12 weeks from now. But for me, the reason I was working on this paper was because I was bad at infectious disease forecasting and I'd been bad at it for 10 years all the way through graduate school. 
My assumption had been that I was bad at it, not because infectious disease forecasting was hard, but because I was trained as a field biologist. I hadn't taken the right physics classes, the right math classes, the right computer science classes. And it was like, it was something about me that was making this hard. I get to the front of the line. I'm still thinking about the paper. I'm still thinking about what the conclusions are, which is that it actually isn't me. It turns out that it's just hard to forecast infectious diseases, right? So it's like amazing discovery as someone who's insecure about their own ability as a mathematician and computational scientist realize it's, it's not me, it's everybody else. Like they're the problem. <laughs> I get to the front of the line. I order the Jamaican avocado. Lotso, the guy who runs the shop and makes the sandwiches, ask if I want pork shoulder. I just say yes, cheese, of course. I get this sandwich, and I want you to kind of kind of close your eyes and imagine what's going on here. So he's only got two small panini presses. The shop is half the size of this room. He puts everything together in a very particular way, right? He's layering three or four avocados on top of mayonnaise with cheese and grilled onions and the pork shoulder and about this much basil. Everything gets grilled down on the sandwich. There's some spice blends that get mixed on the top of it. I sit down, I eat the sandwich. I have something akin to a religious experience. <laughs> I leave without ever noticing that on the wall behind me is this giant caricature of Vladimir Putin suckling from a shark next to an even bigger picture of Ivanka Trump, right? This is how overwhelmed I am emotionally that I don't even realize what kind of place I'm in. Over the next few months, I spent more time eating sandwiches in Lotso's shop than I care to admit. And while I was there, I had this idea. Maybe the way that I could finish this paper was to call my friend Giovanni, who was writing with me, convince him to fly over to Italy, and we're just going to spend a day in the sandwich shop. We're going to write the thing, and it's going to be done. So he, he does this. That's why we're friends. He gets on a plane. He flies over from Italy, Burlington, Vermont. We go into Lotso's shop. We tell him, all right, we're going to be here for eight hours. We're going to finish this paper. We want you to feed us. And the good thing is, if you don't charge us, we can thank you in the paper as a scientific contribution. <laughs> he buys it. We sit there. And this like wave after wave of sandwich is crashing over us, right? So the Babylonian beef, he ages his own beef in Tupperwares for two months before he grills it to medium rare on the panini press, layers it into his sandwich. You take a bite of this thing and it's all the flavors, right? Sweet, salty, umami, fat. Every single piece of lettuce is chopped in such a way that it holds the whole interior of the sandwich together. It's not gonna break apart in your hands, right? This guy should have Michelin stars for what he's doing with these panini presses. We finish this kind of sandwich-induced fugue state of writing <laughs> with a paper that we're convinced is Nobel Prize winning quality. <laughs> right, what we, have shown, what we have shown is that forecasting infectious diseases is provably hard. It does not matter how many physics classes you've taken. It does not matter what your background is. This is just not something that is doable beyond a relatively short time horizon. We go home, we get back to my house, we burst through the door. My partner, Laura, is there to meet us. We're babbling on about sandwiches and Nobel Prizes. We're hugging, we're probably crying. <laughs> we sit down in front of the computer and we write off a few emails. Whole bunch of our mentors. We have made a discovery that's gonna change the face of biology. You can read about it in 48 hours. It's gonna be online. We fall asleep. We wake up the next morning to a dissertation length email from a mentor of ours that we absolutely revere. And the email goes something like this. You have 
probably made a major discovery. But the way you have framed it is so unproductive and incompatible with what's in the paper that no one is going to appreciate the work that you've done. I don't know if you've seen the episode of The Simpsons where Homer gets this like fatal diagnosis in Dr. Hibbert's office and he goes through all the stages of grief in like 30 seconds. <laughs> that was us after we got this email. And we just, we kind of landed on like embarrassment and indignation. We kind of flipped back and forth between the two of those pretty quickly. And instead of doing the appropriate thing, which was to try to process all this, internalize it, understand what's going on, we just said, okay, look, we're going to take the advice. We're going to rewrite the paper. We're going to submit it. So that's what we did. We sat down. We changed the paper. We talked about how, and this is actually more accurate, that like we can tell, we know how many COVID cases there are going to be in two weeks. Like that's definitely something we can forecast. We know how many flu cases you've probably seen from the CDC, like what the risk is for the fall. It's like, Next year, it's going to be hard to forecast in, in eight weeks, in 12 weeks. That's the thing that we were showing. There's some horizon beyond which, which you can't see. The paper gets published. We definitely acknowledge Lotso and his free sandwiches in the paper. We actually had to talk with the editor about it. We're like, no, no, he contributed resources to the science. Like, we can mention Four Corners of the Earth Deli in the paper. We had a framed copy that we brought to his restaurant. We made it to the Instagram page. We did not make it to the wall with Ivanka Trump and Vladimir Putin. In fact, maybe I'm kind of glad that it had happened. We're on our way out the door. He serves us this sandwich that he was calling the Giovanni, which was grilled tortellini with onions and cheese, some kind of red sauce on top of it, fresh jalapenos. I think it was just trolling Giovanni, who's Italian, to see if he would rise to the occasion. <laughs> A few years later, we're back in his shop, and we don't know where the paper is anymore. I think, it, I think it's still there, but we didn't have the nerve to ask him and find out maybe he'd thrown it away. But we were talking to each other, and we finally had the time to, to process all this and to process this idea that like our own insecurity, our own fight-or-flight response got the better of us as we were writing this paper and really did almost derail the entire project. In the end, we did what great sandwich artists like Lotso do and what great scientists do, which is not try to be the lone genius, but is to listen to feedback, be a part of our community, and put out something that, that maybe will change the world or at least get you some free sandwiches. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That was Samuel. And do you now want a sandwich or what? To learn more about Samuel and his work, visit our website, storyclatter.org. Being a storyteller on our stage is just one way to make Story Clatter happen, but if standing alone in the spotlight in front of an audience doesn't speak to you, maybe becoming a Story Clatter donor might be more your speed. Story Clatter donors play a vital role in our ability to bring you this podcast. We're in this together. Story Collider is one big experiment that's designed to connect us around our love of discovery, curiosity, and the natural world. If you believe in the power these stories have and this mission, please donate to the Story Collider at storyclutter.org slash donate. The most popular level is $10 a month, and you can make your tax-deductible donation at storyclutter.org slash donate. But really, any level makes a difference, and we're so grateful to everyone who supports Story Collider. 
It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Our next story is from Maronke Harris. Maronke Harris is an oceanography PhD student at the University of Victoria, BC. She's also the founder of the Imaginative Scientist, science communication and consultation brand. Her story was recorded at Vancouver's Fox Cabaret, and it's all about learning to not take your failures so seriously. Something we all need to remember from time to time. Here's Maronke. There I am, standing on a shipyard dock, surrounded by the buzz of machines. The, my, for the next 28 days, my home will be the 70-meter vessel that spans in front of me. To say I'm excited is an understatement. To say I'm over the moon also doesn't quite hit the mark. To put it simply, and least flowery, of course, I'm a scientist after all, um, <laughs> I have transcended my human form and am now a celestial body traveling on an erythral plane. Time and space outside of this ship, outside of this dock, have absolutely no meaning to me. Nothing else has ever mattered. All that matters is the vessel. And the reason for that is because I have waited over four years to be a part of this deep sea research vessel and to work with this particular deep sea expedition company. I have waited for over 10 to go out to sea as a scientist in general. So this moment is my golden star. It is my debutante ball. It is everything I have worked for over the past decade coming to life. And I was supposed to get on the ship in 2020, but we all know what happened in 2020. So this time around, I was taking absolutely no chances. I had avoided my own family like the plague for over two weeks before getting on the vessel and tested myself almost daily. Nothing is going to mess this up. Nothing is going to ruin this for me. I have taken every single precaution I could probably ever take. This is my time to shine. But don't allow my air of confidence to fool you because I'm nervous big time and extremely intimidated. Looking around the buzzing shipyard dock, everybody seems to know exactly where they're going and what they're doing. I'm also the youngest person there. And even though I'm a grad student conducting my own research, I'm also an intern surrounded by a sea of senior scientists and crew working in what seems like perfect harmony. Man, these guys really know what they're doing. Do I look like I know what I'm doing? That guy over there, he knows what he's doing. So I'm just going to follow his lead. 
I power pose awkwardly looking up at him and back down at myself to make sure I've got it just right. I'm just one inch off there. That's right. On the bow of the ship sits my most critical teammate, the robot submersible that I'll be using to conduct my research. This is about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle if a Volkswagen Beetle was six feet tall. This robot is 1,600 pounds, an absolute beast of a machine, equipped with huge manipulator arms, HD cameras, and designed to carry up to 250 pounds of samples and tools from the seafloor up to the surface. This is a hefty feat of engineering with a matching hefty price to boot, $4 million. And its every move is going to be streamed worldwide live. No pressure, right? <laughs> My biggest challenge will be to implement the dive plan that I've designed for this robot to go to the seafloor 2,000 meters down and collect my samples from hydrothermal vents, which are basically like seafloor superheated geysers. Have I forgotten anything? No, my perfectionism wouldn't let me, of course. <laughs> But if I have, it's also way too late, so I might as well not worry about that. As I cross the gangway and place my foot on the gangway to start my new journey as a seafaring oceanographer, I hear my mother's voice in the back of my head. Maranke, 260 nautical miles out at sea with strangers, no land in sight. Are you trying to kill me? But I quickly wave that away. She's always been a particularly worried mother because I've always been a particularly adventurous child. But if scuba diving shipwrecks didn't kill her, cliff jumping didn't kill her, backpacking over mountains didn't kill her, and some questionable moves in my dating history didn't kill her, then was, what was one more notch really going to do, you know? <laughs> they live long on her side of the family anyways. <laughs> She'll be just fine. On board the vessel, the tone is quickly set during our first all-hands-on-deck meeting. The words of the chief scientist, a tall, intimidating man, ring in my ears. Time is money. Every minute that we're not meeting objectives, we're losing $100. This is a 24-7 operation, which means that the robot is diving 24-7, and all of the scientists work together in two shifts a day, two four-hour shifts, to keep the entire operation running at full speed. I have the four to eight shift, which means that every day between the hours of four to eight, a.m. and p.m., there I sit in the control room a dark, cold room where the magic happens. It's filled with lit up buttons and switches and humming screens displaying the robot's vitals and multiple views from those HD cameras as it dives. And although the control room is filled with other scientists chatting through the airwaves coming through our headsets, I am so wrought with anxiety and anticipation that I cannot see past myself that robot and the stress tethering us together. Every day I wait my turn. 
there's no actual schedule that'll tell me when my dive is scheduled to happen. So every day as I open my eyes in the top bunk of my cramped four-man cabin and make a mad dash for the seasickness pills, the pressure sets in almost synchronized with the seasickness. Is today my day? Oh, the chief scientist is really not in a good mood today. I'll let somebody else deal with that. I hope today is not my day. For 20 days, I wait in this state of agony, just clawing at go time. And one particular day, I make my way down to the lounge to wait for 3 p.m. pastry time. The fun thing about deep sea research vessels is that there's no shortage of funding. So there's pastries aplenty, my friends. <laughs> And the lounge, being the most comfortable area of the ship, outfitted with screens displaying the progress of the current dive in progress for um, scientists who are off duty to watch as they feel, was the best place to wait for pastries. And as I'm sitting there in that empty room, sweet smells filling my nostrils, I'm going through the usual motions of my normal self-torture. If I mess this up, I'm ruined. They'll never let me on another ship again. This is a now or never moment. I am an extremely relaxed person, as you can probably tell. <laughs> as I sit there watching the progress of the current dive, something peculiar happens. The feed cuts to black. My colleagues' voices on the airwaves go silent. And the feed cuts to that classic striped combination. That's odd. Did somebody hit the off switch? I didn't know that there was an off switch that's that easily accessible. Seems kind of like a design flaw, but okay. It's not coming back on, but it kind of, I'm gonna stay calm. It's not like I've been waiting 20 days for this moment or anything, it's, everything's okay. Oh my God, it's still not coming back on. Everything is fine. You cannot lose a robot that size. Shortly after, the chief scientist comes flying through the back door and makes a beeline straight for his sleeping cabin in a quiet rage while I try my best to melt into the floor and stay out of his way. Colleagues slowly from the current dive file into the lounge area, each one looking more forlorn than the next. The air is so tense the kind of tension that makes you feel you would end up on the wrong side of the boat if you even breathe too loudly. So just how do you lose a robot the size of a Volkswagen Beetle? It becomes detached from the ship. And how does it become detached from the ship? The tether connecting it to the ship, supplying our video feed that's being broadcasted worldwide, breaks. And how does that tether break? We're not sure, but it sure did. And what we do know is that as we're sitting there at sea level on the vessel, my critical teammate is sitting 2,000 meters below us on the seafloor. The only chance of me getting my samples on the seafloor. All of my hopes and dreams on the seafloor. <laughs> So as I'm trying my best to blend into the walls and stay quiet, 
A braver soul takes a risk as an innocent scientist who, having missed all of the action, makes their way into the lounge from the sleeping area. When's the sub's dive supposed to end? The confused prey asks, <laughs> eyes searching around the room, begging for a lifeline. Seconds that feel like hours pass before that lifeline is cheekily thrown. Looks like never, mate. <laughs> that one moment, that one perspective shift is all it takes to break the spell. The entire room erupts with laughter and waves of relief wash over everyone's faces. Also, strategies begin to form. And although I personally can't hold my laughter, I for one am shocked and pleasantly surprised because here are all these scientists, these academically driven individuals, stereotyped as rigid, behaving like humans. And I am a scientist who is also human to the best of my knowledge. Why did I not expect them to be like me? Why did I spend all of this time agonizing and being so hard on myself? Talk about a paradigm shift and talk about a self-confidence boost. So it was extremely admirable to witness how we all moved from this moment of utter hopelessness and tension to wait, we can fix this and we can do it if we work together. All it took was that one moment of positivity because nothing bonds like shared trauma. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That was Morake. If you'd like to learn more about her, visit our website, storyclatter.org. Our website is just one way to connect with Storyclatter, but there are so many other ways, and we hope you'll use all of them. You can always follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Head to storyclatter.org to become a financial supporter, or if you want to come to a live show, take one of our workshops, or want to start your own Storyclatter show in your community, you can learn all about that on our website, too. This podcast is produced by me, Misha Gajewski, along with Nikisha Roberts-Washington, Jen Chen, and Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider. The stories featured in today's episode were produced by Catherine Wu, Bart Thompson, Josh Silberg, and Charlie Cook. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and staff, including Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Leslie Brinson, and Lindsay Cooper. Our theme music is by Ghost, and next week, our storytellers tackle the age-old battle between science and faith. You won't want to miss it. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.